0: And let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning uh, quickly declaring that we need you, confessing uh, that uh, we are dependent upon you for our next breath, for the next beat of our hearts. We're dependent upon you for any good thing that you will accomplish in our lives, in our culture, in our church and our families, we're dependent upon you. We confess quickly that you are a creator, God, and we are your creatures, and we have been redeemed by you, and we are your possession. Lord, we confess that uh, we depend entirely and utterly on you. And this morning as we come to your word, Even now we depend upon you we depend upon the working of your spirit in our lives I pray lord that you would take your word proclaimed this morning that you by your spirit would uh, Bring it into our hearts and into our minds in such a way that you cause radical transformation in us That we would be conformed to the image of your son In a greater way as a in light of today's message in light of our time worshiping you this morning Than we were when we walked in. We need you. Without you this this, uh, could very easily and would be just an exercise. We want to see you work. And so I ask that you would do that. I ask that you would take uh, this weak vessel. And proclaim your mighty truth by the power of your spirit that you would work in our hearts. Pray again for Ronnie as she's uh, uh, recovering. Uh, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen her. I pray that you would encourage her. And I pray, Lord, that she would be um, recovering very quickly and uh, be able to, um, to go about the rest of her day and her week um, well and not suffering any ill consequences from this. Thank you for the way you have uh, ordained it, that we have people who can help us when we are weak. And that's true when we fall down uh, physically, when we pass out physically, and that's true when we do so spiritually. Thank you for the way you have constructed the body. It's not by accident, it is by design. So, Lord, we trust you this morning, we look for you this morning. We have our eyes fixed on you this morning, and we look forward to seeing what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know when I was in graduate school for a year, I worked at, a, at a, a couple of different Starbucks and really enjoyed my job. I hated getting up at four am, but the rest of the job I enjoyed, and uh, I got to meet some very interesting people and uh, got to see them day in and day out usually. and uh, I got to see them before they had their coffee, so that it was more entertaining that way. The hair wasn't always quite right, and the eyes weren't always quite open but I got to see them and enjoyed that but uh um there was uh I, I always had some some fascinating conversations with people and I remember I was talking with one coworker of mine and I was uh his dad was a pastor actually and I was talking to him about the Lord and and he at the end of that conversation he kind of told me you know uh Brennan some people have problem with uh, have a problem with organized religion and um, as if that was the sum total of what needed to be said on the subject, and he thought we were done, and I wasn't even put off by that. I I can deal with that. We can we can have a conversation from that point. But but I, th- I thought it was fascinating that he would uh, have an issue with the church. You see, it seemed like it seemed to him that he uh, he he loved Jesus, or he liked Jesus, or he was okay with Jesus, and uh, but it was the church. It was all those the people who kind of congregate around Jesus that were really the problem. Right. And uh, and so probably maybe in some ways we could say, well, you know, obviously Jesus is perfect and the guy sitting next to you is not, you know, sorry to spill the beans on that one. But but um, this guy was under the impression that there's some possible way to love Jesus, to be okay with him, to be rightly related to him and yet be divorced from the church, to be out on his own separate and that that was okay because he had a problem with organized religion. And, uh, and so I was thinking of that in, in light of today's passage, in light of all of these things that uh, God has done for his church, the body of believers universal, all the things that he has worked in our lives individually and corporately, the blessings that he has given us. And so this morning I'm, I'm calling our message, What to Know and How to Know It what to know and how to know it. And the reason you don't have an outline in front of you there is because I normally accomplish that mission on Friday and give that to Rochelle so she can print it and get it to you. And uh, I was sick all day Friday and not able to think a straight thought. So Rochelle saved the day by giving you the piece of paper that you have in your hand there. So (laughs) thank you for that, Rochelle. The title is What to Know and How to Know It. and Our passage is what he already referred to, is uh, the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians, and it is starting in verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Follow along with me. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul is concluding this, uh, this first chapter of his book here that he's, that he's writing to the Ephesians, and he's got various instructions for them, and, and we've been, uh, he's been describing many of these great blessings that, that God has given us. Remember what it said up there in, in verse 3 that, we, that Woody quoted this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing, not a couple... Spiritual blessings, not a couple spiritual blessings, a couple non-spiritual. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places he has blessed us with. And so he goes through and spells out what some of those things are. The, the way God has worked salvation so that it could come from his idea before uh, time even began, before creation even began, an idea in his head to the point of me being saved and you being saved, that he would bring salvation to us. That's a great and mighty work of God. That is a massive blessing, a spiritual blessing of his. And not only uh, does he bring it to us to where we are now saved and we are forgiven of our sins, but he also promises what's going to come, this hope that's to come, right? This inheritance that's going to come. And we talked about that last week in uh, in verses uh, 13 and 14, in him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And so God has made he has come up with this idea of salvation, and then he has done everything that it takes to bring that salvation to a fallen people like us to a lost people like us who had no thought of God, who really never wanted to turn to him. And if we did want something to do with God, we kind of wanted him to be in a, in a way we could control or in, a, in, a, in our own image, right? And so he brought that message all the way to us and he brought that salvation to us. He redeems us and then he promises us this future, this inheritance that's going to come. And so Paul says in verse 15 for this reason, because I have heard of your faith, In the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you. So Paul has heard about what's going on in their church. And he gives thanks for them. He gives thanks for them for all manner of reasons. Not the least of which is that here is more evidence of God working to save people. To call out for himself a people for his own possession. And so he gives thanks for them. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. And so Paul who, uh, who is, is writing to these people. He's heard about what God is doing there. He's excited about what God is doing there. And he is thanking God for what he's doing there. He's also praying for these people. And he's praying some specific things. And it's those things that we want to get into this morning. First of all, he prays uh, that they would have better and more and fuller knowledge of God. Point number one is knowledge of God. Look how he continues, remembering you in my prayers. So he's praying for them. What's he praying? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so, first of all, it's important for us to, to look at and see how he refers to God, because he doesn't just pray that they would have something or pray that God would do something, he prays very specifically that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may do these things. That He's he's calling to mind what all God has done for us already in Christ. And if he's done all of this for us in Christ, all of these things that we talked about in the previous verses, the previous uh, paragraph or two there, that he has, he has called us and he has redeemed us and he's accomplished this and he's given us forgiveness in Christ and he's offered us this inheritance that's coming in Christ, right? God who did all of that, the God of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who did all of that, how is he not going to give you more? It sounds like another verse that you all know. How will he not also with him freely give us all things, right? And that's the point here. That's the point of what he's saying is he's calling to mind that this is God not just some distant God who's out there and who is removed from us and doesn't take thought of us and doesn't really care about us and doesn't really care really if we think much about him, right? That's not the kind of God he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of God who has seen our plight and our predicament, not been satisfied with it, and solved the problem. So that's who he's praying to. And what does he pray? He prays that God... Uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. May give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, when when, uh, when someone becomes a believer, we just read in previous verses, the Holy Spirit comes into their lives, right? And he indwells them never to leave. He, he's called the seal, Right? Look at verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, what happened with the Holy Spirit? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance. Right? So the Holy Spirit lives within you, and he's there forever as a guarantee, never to be broken, meaning when the end comes and, and you are in God's presence there will be no question about whether or not you are to receive your inheritance because the seal, the Holy Spirit, is right there indicating that, yes, indeed, you are to receive your inheritance. And so each believer, every believer, has the Holy Spirit living within him. It's He's not praying here that, that, that you would receive the Holy Spirit, you believers. That's not what he's praying at all. He's praying something different. He's praying that there in... in in uh, verse 17 he's praying that uh, that he may give the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him that idea of wisdom and that idea of revelation is uh, is an interesting idea it means that we can grow in our understanding in our spiritual lives which is a really good thing because if you remember back to the day you were saved or to the time when you were a christian when you first became a christian for me i remember the the day not everybody does But I remember the day, and boy, I am glad that the Holy Spirit gives us more wisdom spiritually from that first point, because I didn't know beans, right? And probably you didn't either. And so he does cause us to mature and causes us to grow. And he helps us to understand spiritual things more deeply and more broadly and in new areas so that we grow in our understanding. We grow in wisdom. We grow in our walk with God. So that we're not, we don't just, uh, we're not just saved, the Holy Spirit's given to us, we're good, and then it's static from then on. There is growth, and he gives growth. And what's happening here is Paul is praying that God would give these people greater understanding, that he would give them greater wisdom. And I love what he says there. Verse 17, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of him. So that means a couple of things. In the knowledge of him means in the way you know him so that you can grow in your wisdom about how you know God, that you understand him better. But it also means as you know him, not just wisdom in any old sense, but wisdom specifically in your walk with him. As you walk with him, as you progress through life, that you would grow in wisdom because the spirit of wisdom and of revelation has been given to you that God has increased by his spirit working in your life, your own understanding, your own wisdom, your own revelation. But he doesn't stop praying there. He continues, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now this is a, this is a similar concept to what we just said in the in the first part there about the Spirit giving wisdom and revelation. Here, the second part is a little bit more about God removing the blinders. God removing the blinders. This is, this is similar to a verse that we run into in 2 Corinthians. If you could turn over to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 4. This is similar. I'm not saying it's identical. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is talking about his ministry. Describing his ministry, what it's like and what it's not like, etc. And I'll start in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, when 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 I was before I became a believer. And the gospel was shared with me. I, I don't recall actually that happening too often. I, I don't recall it happening any other time than, than when I believed the gospel. Though I didn't believe immediately. But spiritual truths I could not discern. My heart couldn't make them out. I was blind to them. The, the God of this world had kind of kind of messed things up so that I couldn't see. I, I, I couldn't understand those truths until verse 6 happened. Until God shone that light into my heart to remove the blinders, that I that I could see the truth of the gospel, that I could understand my need in God's holiness and the redemption that's offered in Christ so that I could turn to him. And that that took a work of God to to remove those blinders from my from my eyes, from my heart in that sense. And and so for everyone who is a believer, those blinders have been removed. Now, does that mean every blinder has been removed? Well, I think thinking about your own life and relationships that you're in and, and just the experiences that you've had, no. Not every blinder is removed. There are still things that we need God to open our eyes to. He, we, we need him to clear away so that we can understand this, this truth about ourselves or about him or about other people or whatever, that there are points of blindness. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So Paul is praying that they would have these blinders removed, that they would have a greater understanding, that they would be able to see more, that their eyes would be open and they wouldn't have any kind of uh, blinders or blocks in the way there. So God removes the blinders. And I love what he says next. Continuing in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you may know. That you may know. Now, I enjoy learning things. I, I, I enjoy learning all kinds of things. I'm a little bit of an egghead that way. And so, knowledge for me is kind of fun. I kind of like that. You know, I've, I've learned about all different sorts of things. But that's not the kind of knowledge he's talking about here. He's not talking about learning more facts. Oh, you just needed some more details. You just needed to fill in your outline a little more, and then you'd have had it. That's not what he means at all. He's talking about the biblical sense of knowing in that you have. Uh, an an experiential understanding that you have walked with this, right? When it comes to relationships, it's, it's personal knowledge of someone. That's how you know someone. You can know about someone. It's very distant. But biblically, to know someone is an intimate kind of thing, right? And it's that way with the truth that he's talking about here, that we would know it, not just in our brains, so that we could pass the test, but that we would know it in our lives. We've seen it. We've seen God be consistent in this. We have seen him prove himself. And so it's that kind of knowledge. It has to do with our experience. It has to do with our life. It's something that we see and we know every day. Not just something that we can tell you on a list somewhere, but it's something that we know. And then he starts going into what he really wants us to know. You see, he used three different ways to talk about knowing. He said that God would give us the, uh, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That God would remove the blinders. That, that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. And that we would really know. Well, what does he want us to know? Well, that brings us to point two. Point two is the blessings of God. He wants us to know the blessings of God. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he's called you. Very briefly, turn over, if you would, to chapter 2 and verse 7. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. I'm not going to talk a ton about this hope. Chapter 2 and verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That sounds like a hope to me. That he would show that to me. That he would show that to us. Immeasurable riches. I love how often in the book of Ephesians the idea of riches is discussed. God must be trying to tell us something about about uh, the way He behaves toward us, about His grace toward us. It's not just a little bit. It's not just, a, a, here, if, if you do this thing, I'll give you that. But it's riches, riches untold, immeasurable riches. Imagine what God's riches must be like. Imagine a, a pile, I don't know, a pile of money. And it's God's riches. Well, that, that would be sufficient to say that it's God's riches. But he says it's God's immeasurable riches, so it gets even bigger than that. He's talking about how huge it is. And that's the way God behaves towards you. That is, that is his grace towards you, his grace toward us. And so that is the hope to which he has called us. That's the same thing that's referred to in uh, chapter 1 and verse 14. The guarantee of our inheritance. That inheritance that is going to be ours. So that's the first blessing is the hope to which he has called us. And then continue on in verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? It almost sounds like a restatement. It sounds like he's restating what he just said about the hope that's to come, right? The hope that's ours in him. But it's not. It's a little bit different. Here, what he's talking about. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. First of all, whose inheritance is it? It's his. Okay, well, maybe it's his that he's going to give to us. Maybe he's going to give us this inheritance. It's his, but he's going to give it to us. If you look in verse 14, chapter 1 of verse 14, whose inheritance is it? It's ours. It's our inheritance. And then here, if you look in verse 18, it's his inheritance. Maybe it's the same one, because if, if a dad is giving an inheritance to his kids, it could be considered his inheritance that he's going to pass on, maybe. But what's fascinating to me is the the last three words there. In the saints. Not to the saints, but in the saints. What's going on here? What kind of inheritance is he talking about? Is this the hope that he just mentioned just before? Is this the inheritance that he's talking about in verse 14? I don't think it is. And here's here's why I don't think it is. Turn over to chapter 3 and verse 10. And I'll try and spell this out a little bit. I'm going to start up in verse 8, beginning of verse 8, so we get the whole sentence there. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, riches again, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We're going to touch on this again in a bit, but what's being said here is that God has invested so much in His church that in eternity, when it's like show and tell time, when God really wants to show, the extent of his grace, the extent of his power, the extent of his glory. He's going to show the church. He's going to pull out the church and he's going to show it to the rulers and authorities and the powers that are mentioned there in 310. And he's going to say, see, look what I did. This is the greatest achievement I have ever accomplished. And he's going to show us. So that sounds awfully man-centered, doesn't it? I don't usually, I don't, I don't like to sound man-centered. I, I don't read my Bible in a man-centered way and it's pretty well centered on God. But this passage is telling us that God, in what he has accomplished, this plan that he has thought up and he has accomplished, he's executed in saving us and the redemption that's to come for us is for the purpose of showing his glory in the greatest possible way. So that when it comes show and tell time and he wants to show the sum total, the highest achievement of his grace and his glory and his power and his working in the world, in all the universe, in all of creation. He's not going to show Alpha Centauri. He's going to show the church. And that's amazing. That's amazing to me. That is how much God is invested in us. That's amazing to me. He's not going to have us there looking on while he flexes some other muscle. He's going to show us off. He's going to put us on display. So with that in mind, look back at verse 18. You may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That is what God thinks of us. That is what God has invested in us. That is what God will continue to invest in us. Though we are poor, and though we are weak, and though we don't always know the right direction, though we falter, though we're afraid, He will continue to invest. And He will continue to invest. And this is what He will accomplish in His church. He will accomplish something that He will bring out and be proud to show as his greatest accomplishment ever and that's what he thinks of us just think about that kind of changes the way you think about church kind of changes the way you think about organized religion that's what that's where god is working and that is where he is working the greatest so that's another thing that he wants him to know he he wants these people to know the hope to which they're called he wants him to know Uh, them to know about God's glorious inheritance, which is us. He considers us a glorious inheritance, not a wart. I feel like a wart a lot of times. We are his glorious inheritance. He's doing that in the church. And then he continues on. What is the immeasurable, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The immeasurable greatness of his power. You could just say his power, and you would get a big picture. But he says the greatness of his power, and it's a bigger picture. But he goes beyond that, and he says the immeasurable greatness of his power. Do you think he's got a big picture of God's power in his mind? He absolutely does. He absolutely does. And what's, what's incredible about that is, is again, those, those last few words of 19, toward us who believe. Toward us who believe. That is God working toward us, working in our lives, working in the church, working through the church, working through us to accomplish His ends. He wants these people to know this. He wants these people to know all these things, the hope, how much God values them, and the power of God at work in the church. Again, we can seem like a few uh, feeble people. We can seem weak and none of us very important. None of us with a lot of money or a lot of clout, right? And we kind of seem weak. And that doesn't matter. Because the immeasurable greatness of his power is at work in the church. He's going to go on, point three, to talk about the power of God. Because he's not... He's not happy just to leave it with, the, uh, with God's power or with g- God's great power, but it's the immeasurable greatness of his power, right? He's going to go on and build on that. And so he continues, starting in, uh, in 19. Um, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So first of all, this is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. This power that's at work in the church is not just some little, you know, weak secondary Uh, Kind of thing that he's got a little left over and so he's going to give it to us This is the power of god that that raised jesus from the dead He was actually dead and then he became actually alive by the working of god's power That's amazing to me. That's incredible that that power which is immeasurable Would be at work in us Would be at work toward the saints But that's what he says so first of all, this is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Second of all, this is the, the power that gave him the highest authority, gave, raised Jesus to the place of highest authority, right? Raised him from the dead, I'm reading in verse 20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So not only did he raise Jesus from the dead so that now he was alive again, but he took him from that tomb all the way to the highest position in the universe. Placed him over all things. Seated him at his right hand, which is a position of authority. That's the power at work here. Have you ever been in a low spot in your life? Yes, we've been at low spots in our lives. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him in the ultimate position of authority As is at work in the church, is at work toward the saints. Does that give you hope? Now, I don't know if God's going to raise you out of that low spot. I do not know that. He doesn't promise that he's going to do that in this life. There will be suffering and there will be persecution in this life. We don't have that promise. But that power is at work. And if he decides to, no problem. If he decides he wants to raise you out of that and put you in a a new and surprising place, he can do that in a heartbeat. That's the kind of power that's at work. And that gives me very great hope. So he wants them to know that this power, is the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, is the power that gave Jesus the highest authority and made all things subject to Jesus. Made all things his subjects. Verse twenty-two. It's kind of referred to in twenty-one also. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Now those are earthly rules and authorities and powers and dominions, up and up to and including Caesar, but also all the spiritual realm. These are references to to uh, spiritual angelic realms and powers, demonic forces in the world. And he's saying above all of that stuff. I don't care what what you know name you give to the minions of Satan or whatever. Jesus is in a position of authority over all of that and over all earthly authority. Caesar, no problem. Our president, no problem. The UN, no problem. An entire one world government, no problem. He's over that. But also in the one, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. So he placed Jesus over them and put all things in subjection to him. He made all things his subjects so that they kneel at his feet in a sense. They sit at his feet and he gives instructions. He gives commands. Think of the highest, scariest thing in your life. And that is in subjection to him. That's encouraging. That is the working power of God toward the saints. Made all things his subjects. And then finally gave him as head and authority of the church. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He gave him as our head. Did you notice we're in a different kind of subjection to him? Everything else has been put at his feet. He's been put over everything. He's, he's, the, he's the, the dominant one and they're, they're maybe not quite willing In their submission to him, they've been forced to be willing. They've been forced to be in submission to him. You can't be forced to be willing. (laughs) They've been forced to be in submission to him. But we're different. He's been given as our head. Is your body in submission to your head? Yes, it is. And you don't even think about it. You just do stuff. Your head tells it what to do and your body does stuff, right? And that's the way it is with Christ who has all of this authority who's been raised, who's been put in the highest position of authority in the entire ever universe, this age, age to come, doesn't matter. All things have been made subject to him. And he's been given as our head. As our head. And so that's a a position of incredible privilege that we would have Christ as our head, the one in this position. And that he doesn't look at us and crack the whip. He doesn't look at us in the same way that he looks at his subjects. Those who have been forced to be brought to his feet. We're just extensions. He's our head. He's the one who tells us what to do, certainly. And we're, we're in happy submission to him. But there's a different relationship between your head and your body. Than between a king and his subjects in that sense. And that's kind of what's focused on here. And that's the position of privilege that we have. Very great privilege that we have in Christ. And so it really should change the way we think about church. It changes the way we should think about one another and about how God works. It's not just me alone in my corner with my Bible or me alone praying, right? God is using the entire church and it's the entire church that these things are true of. They're true in certain ways for individuals and and yeah, for sure. But it's true in the fullest way in the entire body of Christ, the church. This is the way he is working toward us. And so we have that privilege to be involved in that. And this morning, we get to come to communion. We get to celebrate the Lord's table together. And so I want us to think about these verses. Actually, just verse 23. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, which is his body. Okay, head, body, we've kind of got that. The fullness of him who fills all in all. How are we the fullness of him who fills all in all? Think about that. How can we be the fullness? Well, it kind of goes back to what we talked about in in 310, about that day when God is going to pull us out and he's going to say, you really want to see what my best accomplishment ever was? You want to see what my power can do? You want to see what my grace can do in people's lives? You want to see what holy God of the universe can accomplish? You want to see that? And he'll, he'll bring us out and he'll show us. And we will be, be the complete picture, the full picture of what he can accomplish. And it'll be us. Can you imagine that? You know, they're on, on the, you're, you're in, the, in the front row. You're, you're, actually, you're on stage looking at all the people who are in the front row and looking on, and God is saying, here's what I can accomplish, and this is the fullness. This is the utmost of what I can do. Look what I've done with the church. That's amazing, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so as we come to communion today, we get to celebrate that. We get to celebrate the fact that we have become partakers of Christ if we are in him, that we have become a part of the church, that we've been included in this grand story that we've been talking about, that that's us, and we get to be united with Christ We get to be in that relationship where he's our head and we're in glad submission to him instead of being in that position where we are subjected to him down on your knees, subjected to him. We get to be related to him, submitted to him as the body to the head. And that's what we get to celebrate in communion. And so if if I could have the men come forward, please, who are going to be helping to serve this morning.